Listener Production. commentator and journalist Greg Rust and this is Rusty's Garage. In this episode I'm at Sydney Motorsport Park, affectionately known as Eastern Creek. For a time the circuit hosted the Australian Motorcycle Grand Prix and it's known for being a great driver's track. This weekend there are enthusiasts and professionals competing in all sorts of national categories from open wheel single seater race cars through to a four hour endurance event for production cars. Headlining the Lotus entry is Grant Denyer, a talented racer whose diversity is just as evident in his prime time TV success. The Gold Logie winner basically inherited a generational love of riding and driving. It's in the blood. Our grandparents were, were the car lovers, you know, they were a farming family and like farming in the 70s was pretty lucrative. It was the only period in Australian farming that was lucrative. So they always had like new cars and hot rods and Falcons and the Subaru Falcon, which was pretty sweet. And my grandfather had the most immaculate cars you had. Like it might have only been a Toyota Cressida, but it was, it had this like maroon velour interior that didn't have a speck of dust like or fluff inside it which is hard when you've got a, a driveway on a country farm that's five kilometres of dirt you know and so the pride for cars I think started with our grandparents. You were born on the central coast just north of, of Sydney but clearly I can tell from your heart and some of the great fundraising things you've been doing of late that when you spent that uh, latter part I guess the early part of your teens on a farm and things like that that had a big, big impact on you didn't it? Yeah very much like I'm I mostly grew up with um, with my mum. My mum and dad separated when I was 13 and um, the family farm was always that place that, you know, no matter what happened in your life, you know, no matter how much shit went wrong, you always knew that that, that, was, the, that was the safety net, you know. That was the place that we all called home. And, and I spent a lot of time growing up there every school holidays with the grandparents looking after me. Like any kid, you know, the parents got to keep working through school holidays so I get flicked off to the Rellos. <laughs> but it just so happens it was a three three and a half thousand acre farm and, it, you know, I had an old Kawasaki motorbike on there and some homemade go-karts and I just fell in love with machinery whether it be and I was driving at seven on the farm and in the tractor at 12 and I just got this like even when you're on the tractor you just you know you're you're plowing paddocks and you're just concentrating on perfect straight lines and and magnificent corners like and motor racing is no different it's 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 just driving a tractor but at a much faster speed 300 kilometers an hour. Who taught you those early skills was it your grandfather and were you what was the paddock basher (laughs) when you said you were seven what little things were you being let loose at? Man I'd bog some cars in my time. I remember once, whenever it would rain, I'd go, yes, because we'd only have like a little Suzuki Sierra, which has no horsepower, but when it rains, you can get that thing sideways around the sheds and it was magnificent. So every time my grandma would put white linen like out on the clothesline, I'd come past and just spray two lines of dirt across it because I was never very popular. I, I think I probably spent our entire fortune just on fuel, you know, just driving around the farms. And I remember going down the paddock whenever it would get wet and I got bogged and I walked back and it took me, I don't know, an hour to walk back and then we bogged another four-wheel drive trying to pull it out then we bogged our tractor and then we bogged our bigger tractor and we had to get our neighbor's tractor so there was five vehicles all tied together to try and pull me out of a bog so that sums up my childhood on the farm was the kawasaki uh, a bit of a special thing a bit of pride and joy what was it what capacity what became of it it's a ke 175 and it was effectively a road bike with knobby tires that my old man won in a in a raffle wow so he won a raffle uh for that motorbike and then on the same ticket number for a different competition he won an Alfa Romeo which he then um, traded to then go in the Alfa Romeo series of the 80s with Alan Grice and Colin Bond and and so that was his kind of real first proper foray into motorsports so I I remember he put it on the front row next to Grice one year and you know I think he out qualified um, Colin Bond and Alan Jones might have made an appearance then as well and I remember playing with my toy matchbox cars on the hill at Amaru and and everyone screamed and I stood up and I said, what happens? And then my mum said, oh, Dad's rolled the car. <laughs> so he, he rolled it about eight times. And, and that was my probably my very first memory of motorsport. And then I sort of went on to, you know, be a little 
a pit lane warrior as a kid. After an event there, I'd wander around the whole track and try and find as many parts of cars that I could, like headlights, door sills, bonnets. And did these live in your room? What'd you do? Yeah, I'd try and convince someone who had a trailer to take it back to our house for us. I'd beg and plead, and we were friends with a bike called John Burke at that particular yeah. point, and so I'd con him to dragging all these parts back to our shed. Which, And the grand plan is if I found enough parts, I'd be able to put a whole car together. <laughs> like, that was in my, in, in my five-year-old mind. Yeah. That's what I wanted to do. So I remember taking these parts back to the drivers that yeah, owned them that came off the car, get them to sign it, and then I, I was slowly accumulating an entire race car bit by bit, year by year. Those early experiences at pl- great places like Amaru and stuff, they, they obviously have had a, a lasting impression on you and, and a big influence on where you are today and, and what you're doing. Who were the heroes for you back then? In, you know, in addition to watching your dad race and being proud of that, was it Peter Brock? Was it Dick Johnson? Who was it? Yeah, I remember, um, you know, Peter Brock definitely. You know, I saw how he was with the crowd. I know this has been said a hundred times before, but he, he probably had taught me a thing or two about how to act as an adult, probably in the media game, watching him as a kid. You know, I, I remember... Um, going up to some of these drivers and asking for an autograph or taking up the door that fell off their race car (laughs) and occasionally they'd just fob you off and they'd give you nothing and they'd make you feel little and small and insignificant and I always remember that that really upset me quite quite a fair bit so I I always thought you know what if if that was me if I ever made it I I would never treat anybody like that you know I, I Everybody deserves a minute of your time, no matter no matter who you are, whether you're a five-year-old kid or a punter that's bought you a hat or someone who's just paid for a ticket to come through the, the gate, you know. So, you know, Brocky, I think I learned a lot of my professional ethic, you know, watching him at work, to be honest. The carts you mentioned before on the, on the farm, I guess, were about fun. Yeah. When did the first opportunity for you to go racing properly come about? Was it carts? Where did it start? What was the go-kart and how did it all come together? We had an old chassis of uh, my old man's go-kart. Um, so I was three and he'd hung on to it and I was now probably about seven or eight and we put some wheels, some bigger wheels to get some ground clearance, you know, because the rocks were too big on the farm and we put an old motorbike engine on it so it had some gears and Dad sort of rigged up this system so it was, became a bit of a homemade shifter cart. And then I was really starting to crank that thing pretty hard around the farm. I spent all my time sideways and Dad was starting to get a couple of photos where I'm lifting wheels off the deck and he's going, oh, this kid, this kid's having a crack here. <laughs> and then he, one year he took a photo and he blew it up and he took it to Alan Grice because my favourite... I think car of all time is the 1986 Chickadee Bathurst winning Commodore of uh, Graham Bailey and, and Alan Grice. And he took it to Gricey and, and, and Gricey signed it. And we'd get that wheel higher. Yeah, Gricey, <laughs> keep it up. And I was like, wow, someone has recognised my skills. And all of a sudden what I was just doing was pedalling around on my own on the farm was now, oh, maybe I... Maybe I should do it properly. And then, you know, my dad sort of had the same realisation. So even though we lived in different states, you know, he bought me a go-kart for my birthday and and then started the torrid love affair with motorsport. Amazing. So where was the first race? In Victoria somewhere, I imagine? And how did it go? Yeah, it was uh, Oakley uh, Go-Kart Club. Uh, I just started out and I had to try and find someone to get me to the track because my mum was was working. So she had a friend who owned a ute and he'd come on Sunday mornings at 5am. He's a stranger. Didn't even know who he was. He was just in a favour for my mum. Picked me up and he dropped me at the track and then you got to beg people to help you lift it up onto the trolley and beg people to give you a push, you know, start the race. I was doing it all on my own. Uh, working at Kmart and mowing lawns to try and pay for, for go-kart tyres. And and then I remember one year, and this is probably where my career started to parallel into media. I, one day there was a there was a, an old commentator there. He was, must have been about 80 years of age. And he'd sit up there every weekend in the, com- in the commentary booth just commentating these kart races. And so I wandered up one day and tapped on the tin shed and said, mate, do you mind if I have a go? And he said, yeah. And he wandered off and had some lunch. So I'm in there. And here he comes now around the first corner. Look at him go. I had no idea who I was talking about or what I was saying or who the cart drivers were. And then these two young kids went, oh, who's that? It's a new voice. And they came up and sat with me. Um, and we all called it together. And you know who that was? It was Jamie Wincup and Will Davison. Oh, I love it. And, mate, they were rookies. They would have been eight. So it was um, that was my first probably solo crack at, at media as well. How did that then morph into a career? Because in a former life when I was 
working in Sydney radio doing news and things, I can recall late one night after a bulletin talking down line to a young bloke, maybe maybe in Wagga Wagga. I can't remember where you were, Grant Denyer. How did you get into radio? Was that the first media thing and you know was the, clearly what happened with the commentary was a big turning point. Well it was simple as I was hanging around racetracks on, on race weekends whether it was uh, your number dad was involved with motorsport you know a, a category called GTP in the day which is production car racing and then uh, he came up with the idea for utes so I'd sort of just uh, just basically hang with him on race weekends as a good way for us to catch up considering we were in different states and and then it was as simple as, you know, one day I saw a cameraman trying to interview a driver. So I just went over and held the microphone for him. Didn't do anything, just held it, you know, to the driver's face. And he, he said, oh, thanks. And then he saw me again. He goes, oh, can you hold it again for me? I said, no worries. And then I was a cocky little bugger. So <laughs> I started asking questions of the race car drivers because the cameraman had no idea what he was doing. So then he, he just sort of used to get me to do his interviews for him. And then, you know, all of a sudden I start getting asked to come back next weekend to ask a few more questions. And... And it was just that chance. It was that one little... I just saw an opportunity and I, I didn't really know where it would eventuate, but that was probably the beginning of me to head into professional broadcasting, you know. And and then next next minute, I'm a pit lane commentator, you know, for support categories and then pit lane commentator for the V8 Supercast series with you and, and had some amazing, wonderful experiences. So I was able to talk about that love of motorsport that I have had, you know, because all I ever wanted to do was be a race car driver. And I only got into media really because I thought we weren't from a wealthy family. How do you kickstart a career? And I thought, well, you've got to have sponsors. Well, how do you get sponsors? Well, if I'm on television, that's probably a good way to find sponsors. So I was like, oh, like a light bulb went off. If I'm on telly, I'll be able to find the money to be able to go motorsporting to become a V8 supercar driver. And that was, that was the process. I love it because we are both very fortunate in that sense to be able to talk about something you love. Not everyone in life gets to gets to do that. I also recall that in that, that early phase, you and perhaps even your dad were, were very clever at understanding that in order to, to maximise that sponsorship, you had to do something that was a bit different to everyone else. So in one broadcast, I want to say it was in, at Bathurst in a production car race, I wandered up the pit lane, <laughs> and were you getting a haircut before you got in the car? Is that right? <laughs> you were sponsored by a Just Cuts or something? I was sponsored by Just Cuts, who I've, who I've had for, Today. Tw- for 20 years now. Amazing. I pushed a kid in a, in a go-kart once, just gave him a couple of tips. I was leading a New South Wales championship, and there was this kid, and I gave him a push, and I said, oh, what does your dad do? Oh, he owns a Just Cuts store. He goes, you should be the, uh, the CEO, and bang. And I thought, okay, there's my entry into my first ever circuit race, which was, you're right, it was 1999. It was the Bathurst three-hour on the Saturday of the supercar weekend, and it was a Mazda 626, a super sexy race machine. <laughs> and that was my first ever drive, and I had Just Cuts, and they, they funded it. And I, was, I thought, wow. I, and that was a really emotional day because everything that I'd ever worked for and, 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 and dreamed of, I was now racing a Mount Panorama in a real car. And... I thought, how am I going to get these sponsors over the line to hang on, hang on to them forever? I know, if I'm having a haircut <laughs> before I get in the car, because I was the second driver in the endurance race, if I get it on telly, I reckon these guys will be mine. And so it was a terrible idea. I got us on camera, and which started this love affair that Just Cuts and I have had together for 20 years. But now I got in the car just covered in, in, in hair. <laughs> So I had it down my race suit in the back, in my arm, driving around going, <laughs> blowing it out of my mouth. Itchy, sweaty, oh, that'd be awful. It was horrid. But that little point of difference, that little kind of creative spark to go, all right, how can I value add for this a sponsor is the approach that I had commercially, you know, from, from then on into the future. And, and I've had them for 20 years. Bathurst, your first crack at Bathurst, were you daunted, was it I mean, okay, you downplayed the car a little bit there a moment ago, yeah. but but I mean, just to be there and drive a race for anybody, that's a huge thing. Well, I was in the same category as Greg Murphy and Stephen Richards, who were in a little Astra. So that's I was right. like, not only, and I think they went on to win the next day in the one in the one thousand. And so not only was I at the track, but these are these are my heroes. Like I used to sit at the farm with just tapes of Bathurst one thousands, you know, almost up to the roof, and I'd take my go kart seat out of the go kart and I'd put it in the lounge room and I'd take the steering wheel with me and I'd sit there and I'd turn every corner in the lounge room in my go-kart seat and steering wheel just watching Bathurst tape. So the realisation to be there was 
was incredible. I remember I went out the very first lap and I came straight off at the chase and parked it into the sand trap and got bogged. <laughs> that was practice one. Practice two, first lap, straight off the end of, the, uh, of, of Conrad Strait, straight into the sand trap. So I thought, <laughs> I'm not up to a good start here. And then the team I was driving for went down to the local toy shop and came back with a plastic spade and bucket and said, take this with you. <laughs> but, mate, once I sort of found my feet, uh, we are as quick as anything and... Uh, the Richardson and, and Murph were, were on pole and I remember I pulled him in. Um, we were 20 seconds behind. When I got in for my stint, I pulled him in and I finished right on their bumper. So that was a, a really a big moment for me. Very cool thing. And you talked about production car racing. Your dad and, uh, and a very good fellow by the name of Bill West then venture into... A thing called V8 Utes, Brutes, I think, was the you know the Brute Utes to be to begin with. Ford versus Holden, iconic Aussie machines, um, and you go and you play in this in this series. What was your nickname? Because everyone had to have a nickname <laughs> back then, didn't they? And how did you did you enjoy racing them? What was that like? It was wild. It was like the wild west of motorsport. <laughs> there were so many outlaws in this category. It was designed for entertainment. It was a brilliant idea. Um, Dad came up with it, and then. And then uh, took it to a bloke called Ross Palmer, who then initially funded it, and then and then all of a sudden it's up and away, and you know, and I I got uh, VIP pet foods at that particular point on board. Tony Quinn is his first ever sponsorship in motorsport, and my my nickname was Mad Dog because of the pet food connection. And uh, I remember eating uh, the pet food. <laughs> you ate pet food yeah. again. It was another pit lane TV moment. It was like I'll show you how good this product is. <laughs> Uh, as I'm chewing down on this roll of fresh dog food straight from the factory, going, what have I done? Um, and again, it's a relationship I've had for quite a long time with the Quins. The, I remember the first ever race was at Clipsal 500 and they decided for entertainment, you know what would be good? If brakes fade, if brakes fade, the racing will be great. You know, blokes will be going forward and backwards and making mistakes. So we had these standard pads in. You know that big hairpin at the back straight of, uh, of Adelaide? You can see on the telecast that my rear two pads just disintegrate and blow, explode and then just fall out of the car. So then I get round to the final turn and there's, there's no brakes. There's no brakes at all. And I had no experience to know what to do. So the pedal's gone to the floor. I'm narrowing in on the two cars in front of me. And I had to, pick a, had, to, had to pick a line. If I looked left and avoided the cars, I'd head straight for a brick wall. If I looked to the right, you know, I'd take out the leader. So I just decided to nail the car in front of me, which is a bloke called Rod Wilson. And because I, that was the only option, I suppose, was it? was the only option. I could see the, the unexposed, the exposed cement wall, and I thought if I hit that in this, in this road car, you know, that yeah. could be the end. So I chose the car in front. Now, what had happened is we'd forgotten to take out the... Um, with the uh, the airbag fuse, so because we had standard steering wheels in, so what's happened is I've hit the back of Rod Wilson. The airbag's got off, right? And it goes off so fast you can't tell. But the airbag stuck to my helmet, my visor. Oh no! So all I could see is this white glow. So I've gone. All I'm seeing is white, and I know I've had an accident. <laughs> I'm dead. I thought I'm dead. So I thought, oh well, at least it didn't hurt. I'd seriously thought I'd crossed over. Not knowing that this white thing was an airbag over my feet. Grant Denyer, welcome. <laughs> <laughs> it's your turn. I've been waiting for you. And so, and then I sort of careered off into the distance and then hit a wall eventually. And then it sort of peeled off my face. And then the next person through the door was Rod Wilson going, Mate, mate, are you okay? And I remember going, God, is that you? <laughs> you, look, you look a lot like Rod Wilson. <laughs> God, why are you wearing a helmet? <laughs> The cars were... I mean, they did lots of great things to level the playing field. What were the little idiosyncrasies of the Utes like? Was there certain things you needed to do to be quick in them? Look, they were loose in the back, and that was by design because that was entertaining. It looked good. At that point in motorsport, everything was very processional and very, you know, to be fast in a car, you've got to drive them straight. Supercars at that point were very quite um, kind of sanitised. The racing was at, at, at a point where... One team would just dominate every weekend. So there was a level of dissatisfaction in the quality of motor racing in Australia. So the idea is we could at least turn on a bit of a show but make these things look wild, go sideways, passing everywhere. There was also, they had a chook lotto grid system. So you you basically draw your number out of a hat as to where you start on the grid, which meant 
you know, the crazy guys in the middle of the field were now at the front, you know. So there was carnage everywhere, but it was so much fun. I remember driving against James Brock once, and he was a massive, like, death metal fan. And he'd be on the grid and he'd have his crew around and the doors would be open, the windows down, and he'd be just playing this most horrendous music (laughs) at like 11, like just just crank right up so loud. And he'd be so fired up. He'd be going, yeah, yeah, come on, boys. And they'd be so jacked up by this music that he'd get to turn one when the lights go green and he'd just be straight on because he's just, ah, he was just all aggro. (laughs) So they were really good days. You know, Luffy was a great production car racer and he was brilliant in that series and he took me under his wing and showed me a thing or two and Damien White was an, was another great character. It was a really great period and it, it brought a lot of different sponsors into the sport that never had been in motorsport before. So it, it holds a very special place in, you know, in, my, in, in my heart and I went on to win a summer series of the Utes as well and set a few lap records and won a few races so it was good. That was my next question. The, the 04 summer series win, how much did that spur you on and, and how much impetus came from that where you went, okay, well, winning the Summer Series was the, where Dick Johnson sort of came up and tapped me on the shoulder and, you know, I'd been interviewing him at that point. I was a Sunrise weatherman and I used to love doing the weather from the racetrack, again, to kind of showcase the sport that I loved. Um, at that point, it was on another network, but I'd still do the weather here from the racetrack just because I, I loved it and, you know, interviewing my heroes like Dick Johnson. And then one day he tapped me on the shoulder and said, you know what, mate? You know, maybe you should come and have a steer one of our supercars. And I was like, oh, my God. I was like, yeah, we put a deal together to not only have a steer, but then run, you know, the next year in the Development Series Championship. And I remember I didn't get a chance to test the car beforehand because I was stuck in a cyclone up in Queensland and the only chance to test beforehand I, I missed. So I arrived at Clipsal, you know, a concrete line circuit, you know, a half a million dollar race car owned by my hero Dick Johnson with not a mile under my belt. Like a big ask. Yeah. And I remember the first practice session, I was, I don't know, fourth or fifth or something like that, going, oh, I'm going all right here. Now, in the Utes, over the chicane in turn one and two, you can just jump it and keep your foot flat buried into the firewall. No no problem whatsoever. Turns out a supercar, <laughs> you can't. I remember I launched it and it came down on one wheel. So 650 horsepower just through one rear wheel, just turn the car hard right in a nanosecond. And I had a horrendous crash straight into the, the cement barrier uh, in, in turn one and two and wrote the thing off. Uh, broke a bone in my hand, dislocated my shoulder and did a, a lot of nasty damage. And I was devastated because um, it wasn't my car. This, I thought this is my professional breakthrough and now my career is over before it's even started. And I remember going, the ambulance was there and they said, we're going to have to take you to hospital. And I was like, thank God, at least I don't have to see Dick Johnson. <laughs> so I stayed at the hospital for as long as I could, knowing I was going to have to face the music. And I was felt sick to my stomach that I'd ruined my career. And I remember getting back to pit lane and walking down pit lane, doing the walk of shame, and I could see Dick standing out in front of the garage waiting for me. So, like, my heart in my throat, I've gone, oh, I'm just going to have to face the music. So I just walked up to him and I said, Dick, I am so sorry. And he'd heard that I hadn't, I'd broken my hand. So he goes, mate, that's okay. I've seen worse. Put it there. And he holds his hand out and he shakes my broken hand <laughs> so hard that I nearly cried but I didn't want to let him know so he shook it deliberately because <laughs> I just unfortunately written off his car How do you bounce from that? How does Grant Indigo Righto, this is pretty heavy how do you you know, get everything back together and, and have another shot? I think as long as you realise the mistake you make, like I was able to analyse it pretty quickly what I did wrong if it was a mystery what I had done wrong I think I would have been scared of motorsport forever and might not have even got back on the horse you know I hit it was a head on hit at 180k an hour it's a sudden stop so it was I knew what I'd done wrong I knew I'd I'd left I'd leapt the curb kept it buried in like I did in the Utes it's come down on one wheel a tyre that big of course it was going to turn hard right so as long as I could break that down have a look at the data process it then I could put it behind me as it's just something to to learn you know because you don't you learn just as much from your mistakes as you do from your your successes as it just turns out I've made a lot of mistakes (laughs) 
2002, we go to a little racetrack called Malala on the outskirts <laughs> of, of Adelaide. It's the day after a young Paul Dumbrell has won the Super 2 title. You were there broadcasting for Trackside. I think I was coming in to, to do a yarn for a show called RPM. And you got, we both got to drive his, I want to say, ex-Perkins or ex-Russell yeah, Ingle right. Commodore. Was that your first drive of a supercar? And if, even if it wasn't, recount where you were and your first experience driving a supercar and what you thought of it. I think it, I think it might have been my second. Yeah. Or it might have been my first. Did it blow your mind? Oh, it was crazy. I know that Brad Jones once said, hey, we're going to do, do uh, you know, the ride days that they do after an event, mm. you know, when they put like 120 people through. He goes, do you want to come and have a steer of the thing at a ride day? I think the ride day might have been my first ever V8 supercar drive. So I pity the passengers they would have put in with me that day because it wouldn't have been pretty. They would have been crunching the gears and the wheels locking up. And So I think that was my second drive. Okay. And that was when I was like, this is what, this is what I want to do. You know, I want to, I want to turn professional. And then from that point on, having driven one, all you want to do is obviously be on the grid with your heroes at Mount Panorama and drive a V8 supercar. So it consumed every waking moment, you know, of my life just chasing that dream. And again, I enjoyed media, but it was a media to find me the funding and sponsorship to get me on the grid to get me into V8 supercars. But it's not just been a, a hobby in that sense then, mate, because, I mean, you, you know, top ten results in the great race at Bathurst, driving for Dick Johnson, you've recounted that. You know, winning accolades like the Mike Cable Award, and that's, and that's named after a great Aussie motoring journalist, and he was big on promoting young talent. And they're huge things, mate. Yeah, it was. I was driving for Dick Johnson at that point and then um, winning the Rookie of the Year for V8 Supercars was, you know, a really special one. And Cam's Motorsport Personality of the Year in that same year. And and it it just felt like everything was just starting to work, you know. It it, it took me a while to come to grips with the supercar, you know, but then I started to get, you know, a a couple of race wins. And I had a... Everything was going really, really well, but unfortunately I had a... A crash in a monster truck just just mucking around I was just doing it for for giggles more than anything and I had a really heavy landing and I broke my back um, right when my motorsport was going really really well for me and and it was a a long slow recovery because we elected not to operate Um, it was really really bad I uh, shattered my L1 into 11 pieces but if we the surgeon let it. He goes. If we take the gamble of letting it heal naturally, there's a better chance of 100% recovery. The problem is that's four months of lying on your back, and that does crazy things to your mental state. And the medication is something they never warn you about, and and the consequences and the effects that that has on you are horrific. Um, but what it did do is it it really focused me. Um, it was so horrible that period that motorsport was the light at the end of the tunnel to continue on like to continue to to look after yourself and get well again and I knew if I can get back in a race car and I can get another win again I can put this whole shit period behind me you know I knew that that that's what I needed to do so I used that as my focus in the rehabilitation phases now the medication is is, is was so bad I remember like not being able to walk and then you never know your difference between your dreams and reality. You're, every time you close your eyes, you go into the worst horrific dreams that you could ever imagine. Like the, the things that you're the most fra- afraid about in this world happen every time you close your eyes. And then when you wake up, you can't differentiate as to whether it's real or not. I remember running down in the middle of the night, barely unable to walk and, and thinking that there was a home invasion at home and, and my wife was being attacked. So I was like, where are they? Where are they? And she's on the computer just tapping away on the keyboard going, who, where, what? And I said, I know they're here. Where are they? Just lots of incidences like that through the period that um, no one ever talks about. And it was, you know, it was, it was a really quite dark, horrible period. And I was due to drive in a Bathurst 1000. I'd had a drive for, um, at that particular point, I think it was a Ford Rising Stars. I was... Um, with Michael Patrizzi, yeah. and I had to watch my car start on the Bathurst grid without me because it happened straight after the, I think it was the Phillip Island 500. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that was oh, horrible because my whole life had been trying to get on the grid at Bathurst and now I was watching my car start, you know, without me. So that was, that was quite a difficult thing, but it, all, it was a really strong motivator for me to come back to motorsport and have a really good crack. So when I did come back... I had more podiums than I'd ever had. You know, I'd had five out of seven rounds I was on the podium. I had five round wins. Um, I had the best motor racing year of my life. And that's when I decided 
I can put that period behind me now. Um, I probably need to choose one or the other, motorsport or television, because I was getting to a point where I wasn't doing either to the best of my ability, so I had to pick one, and it was a hard decision, but I chose television, you know, for the longevity of a family and and the future. You know, unfortunately, I picked the two most volatile careers in the history of the universe, motorsport and television, but... I won that race, that many races that year that I was like, okay, I've done what I've needed to do. You know, I'm going to give it away now. I want to go to the, the Sunrise chapter just briefly for a moment because it was massive for your, your career. Did you kind of wander into it and think, no stunt is off the table here because you did some unbelievable things, didn't you? Yeah, it was. they came to me and I was working at Channel 10 and I was a pit lane commentator and colour reporter for the, the, the Tupacar telecast and... And they said, look, we want you to be a weatherman. I was like, I don't want to be a weatherman. Weatherman, I was worried that the weatherman tag sticks forever and and I wouldn't be able to live my broadcasting dream of perhaps, you know, being the Daryl Summers of, you know, tomorrow. You know, I loved variety television. You know, I I loved Steve Izard and, and, you know, those kind of shows. And so it was like, I think that's where I'd like to end up. Weatherman, that's not a stepping stone on the way. And then I thought about it and I thought... I went back to them and said, what if it's about anything other than the weather? <laughs> Would that be okay? <laughs> they said, mate, whatever you want. So it, was, it became this little segment of adventure broadcasting. Yeah. You know, let's show you a place that you haven't heard of before or would ever get the chance to go to. Or we do something so crazy that it's just unbelievably compelling. And then every day we just made it a challenge to do something ludicrous. You know, whether you're riding a bull, you know, in the outback or getting the world record for the world's largest tandem bungee jump, you know, live out of a helicopter over Bondi Beach. And I remember that day when we are going for the record, I had the CEO of the network. It was in the middle of State of Origin and David Leckie, who, who ran the station at that point, rings me at half time. I think he'd had a few. <laughs> and he's like, mate, I know you do. Can I swear? He goes, mate, I know you're doing that fucking thing tomorrow. (laughs) He goes, I don't know what the fuck for. Sounds fucking stupid. And I'm like, wow, this is the biggest name in media who's called me in the middle of the stage. He was at the game. He goes, but me bloody legal team says I've got to let you know that you don't have to do it. (laughs) All he wanted was to make sure there was no legal responsibility on the network. He'd handed it over. Good luck. (laughs) If I died. Because the record for the world's largest tandem bungee jump at that point was 150 metres. And we decided to do not 10 metres more, not 20 metres more. Let's double it. So we did 300 metres. And so having Leckie kind of got himself illegally off the hook, we did it anyway. And I remember I did it with um, the guy who invented bungee jumping, AJ Hackett. And he rocks up and he's had the biggest night I think I've ever seen anybody (laughs) recover from. His eyes are bloodshot and we're about to climb into this helicopter and go over the city to Bondi and then jump out live on television. And it's at this point as I climb into the helicopter, I start to doubt whether we've made the right decision. Because I thought, has anyone done the maths like on this? And we had to hold this 300-metre bungee cord as we're going over the city. We nearly fell out, because we were standing on the skids of the helicopter flying to the beach. We nearly fell out over the city. If we had fallen out over the city, we just would have hit every building on the way through dangling from this rope. And because we tried to yell to the, the, the chopper pilot to slow down and he couldn't hear us because he has his noise-cancelling Bose headphones on. And we nearly fell out. Whoa. And so I had to throw something at the chopper pilot's head to get his attention um, to try and slow down because the wind standing on the skids at speed was just too much for us. We eventually get to Bondi and AJ, I do a live cross from the chopper to Koshi and Mel. I put the micro, microphone down. AJ can't hang onto the rope anymore. I look around, his, his arms are all bloodshot and he goes three, two and jumped. No instruction, no double check. At this point it was so rushed, I didn't even know if I was tied on. I didn't even know if the rope was tied to my feet. He's gone. So I've gone, I'll go with him. So I've jumped after him and grabbed him and just pulled him in, falling, not knowing if I had been tied on. No way. Yeah. It was the worst set of circumstances. So on the way down, I'm thinking, if I don't hold on to him when this pulls tight, I'm going to hit the water at a speed where I'm going to die. So I just remember... Grant, it's me again. (laughs) (laughs) I'm ready again. And the free fall felt like it took forever. And then this slowly, slowly, the speed started to come out of the fall. 
and I thought, oh, I haven't slipped through his arms. I'm good. I'm tied on. I'm tied on. This is great. This is good. Yes, AJ. We're going to get the record. We're going to get his world record. And then it starts to recoil and go back up and go back up. And all I can see is these giant chopper blades above us. And we're recoiling at such a speed because the rope was so long. This is where I thought, this is where the maths hasn't been done. I thought, what if we recoil further than our departure point? That's a giant blender up there. So the whole way up, I'm going, it's not the water that's going to kill me. So it's giant spinning things up there. So it was, it ended up being okay. But it was the most, it was probably a live TV event that put me in another category, I think, for broadcasting. And it was so much fun. And then we sort of just went to try and better up it. that and yeah. better that every single week. It was crazy. Wild, mate. Wild. This is Greg Rust, and you're listening to Rusty's Garage. More with Grant Denyer in a moment. In this series, I speak to some of the most passionate automotive designers, collectors, riders and drivers I know. Robbie Madison is known as the modern-day Evil Knievel. Maddow's jumped off buildings in Las Vegas, made the Guinness Book of Records by launching 100 metres on his dirt bike and played stunt double for Daniel Craig in the James Bond movie Skyfall. His love of pushing the limits also extends to engineering. You know, as a kid surfing on the south coast of Kiama, I'd always sit in the ocean. I always think, how good would it be to jump off this wave to that one over there? And now that's what my goal is. That's my, my vision. So I'm going to turn my KTM from 72 horsepower to 150 horsepower, supercharge it, and uh, the thing's going to float, and we're going to be able to do freestyle motocross on the water. Learn about the bike that floats in the full episode with Robbie Madison on Rusty's Garage. the roundabout turn right then right then right again and test your drifting skills was it a hard drug to stop then i mean and i like the fact that now you you still it's more than a dabble really it's you know indulging your passion which you can you know clearly from a work and time perspective do but that's obviously important to you because you enjoy it yeah i think it's important to do things that are good for your soul you know motorsport is good for me i like it you know it makes me feel good you know and it's important that you have things that are for you in this life that aren't just work or family i think you need that third element i think it's one of the key factors to a happy existence um motorsport can be dangerous and we're aware of that and but just enjoy it so I can do it for fun now I don't do it as a semi-profession like I was doing it you know I I, I remember getting to Bathurst you know that first time and doing a a parade lap around the track standing in the back of the ute and I think that's when it really dawned on me man I've I've bloody made it Mm. you know from a kid sitting in a lounge room on the farm with piles of Bathurst tapes Mm. dreaming in his Mm. go-kart seat and steering wheel I'm, I'm here you know, that first Bathurst 1000, I did it with Alex Davison and we were running third with 45 minutes to go. Um, we were about to be on the podium. It was insane. And then he came out of Forest Elbow and his seatbelts came undone. Whoa. Yeah. And he tried one lap with, with them undone and he nearly came through the windscreen when he put his foot on the brake, at, you know, at the end of the chase. So he had to come in. So we ended up finishing eighth. But it was nearly a podium, podium on debut, which, which would have been... Absolutely incredible. So, you know, I had three great Bathurst 1000s and, and I think maybe when I got to the point of ticking that, you know, off, off my list, you know, I was, I was happy to probably give it away. You use that term, ticking off the list. Mate, there's been some fantastic things that you've had a crack at along the way from Bathurst 24 Hours in Nissans and Porsches. The one that sticks in my mind is that you went with Tony Quinn to the Nürburgring yeah. for the 24-hour. What? I mean, that legendary place, good car to go and tackle it in. What was that whole experience like? Yeah, what was that? It was a 997 RSR, crazy wings on it, an amazing bit of kit. I remember doing a lap around the track with a driving instructor and he said, what car are you in? Expecting it to be like a Nissan Pulsar. (laughs) (laughs) I said, this RSR Porsche. He goes, holy hell, good luck, man. You know, an Aussie who's never seen the joint because it is... It is the craziest circuit on the face of the planet. You know, there's nearly 100 corners. It's 26 kilometres long in full length, including the GP circuit. It's impossible to remember them all. And night time. And the Quinn, and as I drove with the Quins, they don't like to do hard work. They, they, None of them wanted to drive at night. So my first practice lap, and I only got two, was, was in night time. And then the race started. And then... 
the sun drops and the queens are like, we're off to bed. <laughs> it's like, good luck, GD, this is yours. So I do like the whole night stint with Craig Bear just doing a couple of swaps every now and then. And around, there's like 300,000 mad Germans camped around this joint. Now what happens around the back parts of the circuit is there's barbecues and bushfires everywhere. Now we had these giant paws on our car for VIP pet food. So we stood out like bright fluorescent yellow paws on a black car. Turns out that makes us a target because <laughs> they, what they, the mad Germans do is they fire fireworks at your car while you're driving around. So you'll be driving around trying to figure out whether this next corner is left or right and all of a sudden like a, a firework shoots your wi- at your windscreen and bounces off. Like So you feel like you're under attack in a war zone whilst trying not to crash and win a race. And it was insane. We finished uh, second in class and sixth overall, and there were 300 cars in that race then. 300. Like a scene out of Star Wars at the same time, isn't it? Um, What about the most embarrassing thing you've done behind the wheel? It doesn't have to be racing orientated. This can be, you know, do you sing at lights on the way to work sometimes? Do you do what what crazy things have have, have you had a moment where you haven't been able to fix a car on the side of the road and you've had to call someone or... I'm mechanically hopeless. I do remember, I shared, I remember sharing a race car once with someone who peed in the seat. And I remember climbing in after a driver change and... Heat and urine is a terrible combination. <laughs> it would sting my eyes and burn my nostrils for three hours in that race car, and I'll never forget that person. <laughs> it was the worst thing ever. It, oh, hang on, this is just sent me to in another direction. In the New South Wales go-kart state titles, I remember being on the front row of qualified on pole, and next to me was a person called Leanne Tander. <laughs> and Leanne Tander... Um, and I tell her this every time I see her because it still irks me. She punted me off in the first turn of the final of the national of the state titles, and I have never forgiven her since. Really? Yep. And never, and never will. <laughs> Garth loves it because he reminds me every single time I see him. Remember that time my wife punted you off when you were on pole at the state titles? Yeah. You've had some diversity along the way. You enjoy a bit of tarmac rallying as well, don't you? How did that first start and uh, what's been the most pleasurable sort of target thing you've done? First time ever trying to... I think tarmac rallying is possibly the most enjoyable form of motorsport I've ever done. Well, why? Not Tell possibly, why. it absolutely is. Uh, great roads, mm. great cars, mm. no cops, the safety of non-coming vehicles. It is the most purest form of driving pleasure. Um, you're doing it with someone next to you as well. You've got a navigator. So coming from circuit racing, you know, you might pass two cars in one corner, but you're the bloke that, you're the only bloke that ever saw it, you know what I mean? Yep. Whereas you get to share it with somebody, great parts of Australia, and it's just, it's very gladiatorial. It's dangerous. You, you know, I would have seen oh, five or six people die in tarmac rally accidents in rallies that I was in including Peter Brock I was there that day that we unfortunately lost Peter and which was an incredibly difficult and emotional day um, for, for all of us and but it was just gave me a rush like nothing I'd ever had before motor racing is circuit racing is very clinical it's very highly repetitive and it deals in millimetres and, and micro fractions and you've got 30 other cars that are, are so hungry to just punch you off into the third row of the crowd it's just very aggressive and intense and, and hard work but tarmac rallying was just for the sheer pleasure of turning a steering wheel on a nice road and and manipulating a car to dance and and move underneath you and and not knowing what's around the corner was exciting as opposed to a circuit that you you just go around and around and around and around repeatedly just trying to you know find a, a milli a millisecond so it was really raw and real and in great countryside and over a span of a week so i i enjoy it so much so much you know, but it, it, unfortunately it all... And I'd always had a feeling in the back of the mind, my mind, I'd seen too many people to die and I knew the danger uh, and it doesn't always necessarily mean how good you are or how safely you drive. There can be so many factors that can bring you undone. And uh, unfortunately last year, um, you know, I, I, I came off the road at you know, 160k an hour and, and, and hit a tree head on um, and uh, there was nothing I could do. And it was, um, it, it was, it was, it was God calling again. <laughs> Grand. 
I've got a hotline for you. Victoria, you were in, uh, you know, an event down there. You're with Dale Moskett, who's uh, been a co-driver at World Rally Championship level. You're in a, you're in a quick car, good car, a Lotus. What, what went wrong that day, mate? Oh. And how did it hurt you? Because I mean, the vision—if people go and Google this now and find it on YouTube—it's it's pretty frightening. Yeah, it, it was frightening. It was. Um there was nothing I could do. Um, it was out of my control, unfortunately. And the car just left the road and I wasn't able to bring it back on. Um, the hardest part in the world was having, you know, one of your best mates beside you. And I'll never forget the, the noise that Dale made. You know, he's a professional who's done, done so many years of World Rally Championships and he's been getting into big crashes. But, you know, you never want to hurt, you know, a friend. And he made this noise as we left the road that, I'll, you know, will haunt me forever. It was... I think, you know, he thought that potentially, you know, that it might have been the end for both of us. And um, I did my best to avoid uh, a tree. And I, when I realised I couldn't get it back on the road um, and I was losing the battle, I turned out of the, I turned out of the fight and turned in, into the bush to try and avoid a big tree that was coming up. And at the point where I thought, OK, that's the best I can do. Uh, it's time to close my eyes and see what happens. And um, at that point, I closed my eyes and there was a hidden tree root, which I didn't see, and that picked the car up and shot it into the into the giant tree that I th- I was planning on missing. Yeah. And thankfully, the you know we sort of barrel rolled and tumbled and then came to a, to a stop. And, and Dale's knee kneecap was up around his hips. Uh, he'd broken his back. Um, you know, I'd broken a few bones. Um, and I think the only thing that saved us was the fact it was a rear-engine car. You know, there was, there was no metal in the front of the car, so we centre-punched that big tree, as it turns out, and most of the car did the absorption, and thankfully the Lotus has an incredibly strong monocoque, an aluminium monocoque, and, uh, you know, that sort of kept us alive. But, you know, climbing up out of that ravine to go and flag down some help was, you know, it was a horrible, horrible scenario, and thankfully help came pretty quickly, and Dale's OK today, but... You know, there's probably two moments in motorsport, you know, that I think, you know, unfortunately, I don't want to remember forever, but I will. You know, that was one of them. And the other one was David Reynolds was in a, 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 a tarmac rally crash. I think we might have been at Mount Buller and it was wet and he was in an open top car. And I remember going past just as Davey had climbed out of this ravine. He manually just climbed up the hill and the car was down the hill. And I'd never seen the look on someone's face so terrified in my life. And, and his co-driver had been killed in a, in a crash. And I just, his eyes, I will, I will never forget. So it's, you know, whilst being one of the most enjoyable things you'll ever do in a race car, you know, I think the consequences are possibly a little too high for me, you know, in this stage of my life, you know, with a young family. So, yeah. Getting healthy and well again is the most important thing. As you and I sit and talk here now, you're racing again at, at Sydney Motorsport Park, which is great. Dale is off co-driving again, which is tremendous. It, because you and I both work in, in TV, I know that and particularly at your level, you're, you're right up there, mate, it, it then becomes a worry for the network, doesn't it? Because you're a major face for them, a major asset for them, but they know you love doing this. Does that lead to difficult conversations and, you know, how does that all sort of pan out? Well, I think that was the day of the Melbourne Grand Prix, that day I had that accident in the Tarmac Rally car and the Lotus, and the first word out was that I died. So I remember Channel 10 were getting word from emergency services that I'd been in an accident and I was killed. And they were debating whether to talk about it. I know Matthew White was facing the decision of do we announce this right now and live on television or not. It turns out, obviously, it was mixed messaging and I, and I wasn't killed. And I was expecting 10 to make the call and go, look, you know, we need you to give it up. We, you know, we got too much invested in the shows that you make with you in them we need you to give it up um thankfully my boss is mark scape's wife <laughs> so i am off the hook uh look channel 10 knows that i come with emotional baggage that is motorsport and and thank god scape married correctly <laughs> so tony you know tony's been around motorsport for a long time and you and i both worked with her when she was the production manager of the v8 supercar telecast and yeah they 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 know it's part of what makes me tick Grant, I'll call you back. (laughs) (laughs) 
you've driven some fantastic race cars during your career. There's a there's a national GT endurance title there as well, from Porsches to V8 supercars, McLarens. Is there one that you have a soft spot for? Is there a race car that you know, maybe because of the success or because of the way it drives, that you think, yeah, that's the one of all of them that I've driven so far that stands out? Yeah, obviously driving a DJR car was... That that, that was a made-it moment for me. Um, I remember... Oh, it's a really good question. Um, when I decided to give up motorsport, um, I walked away from it completely. So I broke my back, came back, had one year in the development series, won all those races and then was then gave it away. I didn't go to a racetrack once in four years, didn't watch it on the telly once. No way. Never spoke to anybody who went to a racetrack. Was that hard? Withdrawal symptoms? I think I had to. I think I just needed a cleanse. I knew I, I'm a terrible spectator. Yeah. Um, so if I wasn't going to drive and I was going to walk away, it needed to be a clean break. Um, so I completely pretended motorsport didn't exist and I just got on with the business of making television. I think that's the only way I was ever going to be able to put it behind me and properly focus on media. So one of the coolest cars, and I think something because it helped me find the fun in motorsport probably more than ever in my life, was I decided now there was room for motorsport back in my life. This is 2015 and I drove a Maranello Ferrari in the Australian GT Championship with Tony Delberto and we won nearly every race. We missed the first round but we nearly won every race and we finished second in the championship. I didn't know if I could still do it. I didn't know if I'd still love it. I didn't know if I was fast anymore. I, I wanted to evaluate how I felt about motorsport again in my life and I just had the best time. Circuit racing, particularly as you're trying to become a professional, like I said before, is so much hard work and so intense that it's almost quite, at times, unenjoyable. Now this was just about turning the steering wheel of a wicked-looking car, winning races, and it was the easiest and most enjoyable car I've ever driven. It was a weapon, and what it did is it kind of reshaped my idea of what motorsport means to me and how much it means to me. So it was just about having some fun again, and I've never had so much fun in my life. We're at Eastern Creek now, City Motorsport Park. You're with the Simply Sports Cars guys driving a, a Lotus. Share with our listeners a bit about the car and what it's like, you know, lightweight, horsepower. Tell us a bit about it. It's cool, you know. It's obviously a, a, a quite a world-famous brand, which is cool. You know, when I talk about the Ferrari just a moment ago, that was another one of those moments where you go, oh, my God, there's a prancing horse on the front of this thing, and I'm driving with an Italian called Tony Dalberto. You know, give me a latte now. Like, this is, this is as authentic as it gets. Um, Lotus is a great international brand. They're such a cool little car. Um, a 1,000 kilos, 350 horsepower now. So they've got a little 3.5-litre V6 in them. So they've got good grunt. They, they break so late, you know, under brakes, which makes them so fun. But they're quite a lively experience, quite a raw experience. There's not much to them. They're pretty basic. But, you know, I haven't shifted a manual gear stick in probably 10 years and I miss it it's so much fun because you're really manhandling the machine proper driving yeah you're not just flicking paddles or you know in a GT car as fun as they are the car is doing so much of the work for you whether it be in the electronics or the amazing amount of downforce whereas this is just raw and unhinged and fun and it's 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 really it's grassrootsy and it's you know there's so many different other types of cars out on the track at the same time so there's traffic and there's battles it's it's really raw and and rewarding to the point where you drove it for two hours and won a race at Winton last time out well done on that one of the key things about this podcast is the garage so let's get to the Denya garage firstly what's the daily driver uh, we've got a Toyota Land Cruiser. We live on a farm in Bathurst, so we thought we'd do the farmer's thing, and I'm a fake farmer, so I'm trying, trying to give myself authentic credits, <laughs> so I drive a Land Cruiser. It's good for the kids. I've never really had exotic road cars. I think because I race cars on a track, I don't feel the need, I don't see the value in someone spending extraordinary amounts for a road car, because you can't use it. Like, where do you use it and not end up in jail in this country? So um, I just kind of like simple things. Although I do, I, I gave myself a project when I broke my back. I knew I was going to be on my back for a while. So I, I, I thought I'd find myself a project car. So I bought myself a 1965 
hatchback Mustang. Um, Where did you find it? What state was it in and what have you done to it? Well, I'll tell you what state I was in. I was high on morphine. <laughs> and stupid me thought, this. I found this woman who was bringing it into Australia. She'd never done it before. She had an American boyfriend who found the cars and, and got them ready. I paid her up front while the car was still in America. I don't know what I was thinking. She could have run off with my money. like in a. She probably should have run off with my money, quite frankly. I deserved it. And I thought anything could have turned up. Um, but because I was on that morphine drip in hospital, I thought, yeah, it'll be fine. And what turned up was this magnificent Mustang in beautiful condition, ivory green with these two vintage white stripes over the top with the hood scoops like it's a 350 GT, you know. it's. I just find the Mustang, the classic Mustang, is such a timeless, sexy shape. The 60s was such a great period in automobile design. Like, I just, I love it. Have you done anything to it since you acquired it? What, what you know, mods have you made? Yeah, it looked good, but it handled like shit. <laughs> Wouldn't turn or stop. It was like a boat. So I had all the suspension done by a race tuning mob, um, which is good, which just sort of made it safe to drive and it gave it a brake upgrade as well because it, only the rear brakes worked when I got it. So if you drove it and you pulled up to a set of traffic lights, you'd only ever arrive with the rears locked, sliding sideways up to the traffic lights. It was lethal. <laughs> you wouldn't drive it in the wet. Um, so I just got it, you know... I needed it to be safe so I could take a family member in the car. You know, I, I didn't. I, I lived dangerously enough on the racetrack. I didn't need to be the road as well. Very cool. That's not the end of your resto projects, though, because there has been a two-wheel resto oh, project. Yeah. And I wanted to get to this because I've had this discussion with Merrick Watts. I've owned a Honda CT110, a, a posty bike as well, and I, before I moved last year, I sold it, and I actually kind of regret that now. Mine was just bog stock standard, beautiful... You have done some cool things to yours. Just tell us about it. Where did you find it and how hands-on were you with this? Well, I just left Channel 7. I was doing a show I wasn't really into and it wasn't for me and I kind of walked away from it and Channel 7 wasn't very happy about that. <laughs> so let's. Uh, I had a little bit of time on the sidelines. <laughs> so I needed a project and... I, I loved the idea of a posty bike so much that when I was on Sunrise, I decided to ride across Australia on a posty bike. So I decided I'd go from the most eastern point in Australia, which is pretty much the Byron Bay Lighthouse, to the most western point in Australia, which is a point somewhere I can't quite remember. You are mad. Yeah, <laughs> but through the through the middle, like not not on a tar road. We we, we went the dirt way, like through stations and properties and kind of like almost in a northern uh, crossing. Wow. A stupid idea. <laughs> stupid idea. And so to make the trip, because it took us about three weeks, so to make the trip go a little bit longer, I, I changed the gear ratio, you know, and got a special jet for the carby just so I got a little bit more. I got an extra 5K an hour out of it because I'd done the mass. If I got an extra 5K an hour out of it, it should chop off about three or four days. <laughs> and it was the craziest adventure just in the middle of nowhere. I just remember getting chased by brown snakes and goannas and emus and with this little CT110 maxed out trying to run away from a creature. It was it was a wild adventure. So did, then, you, did you keep that bike and is that what became of the project or you bought something new? That's what inspired, I think, no, I, sold, I had to give that one back and then I bought one. And I thought, I want to trick it up a little bit. So I, I stripped it all apart, took every single bolt out of it. And every, I had no idea what I was doing. All the wiring. I had, I, there was no way I was going to remember how this thing was going to go back together. <laughs> and then I painted it. So I gave it this, this candy apple red. I wanted it to kind of still be true to a posty, but just slightly coolified. It's this candy apple red, with again with an, a vintage white stripe down the middle. I took all the accessories and bags and racks and stuff off it and stripped it right back. Took all the lights off and just made them into tiny little LEDs. They're real subtle. Put ape hanger bars on it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> so the thing's got ape hanger bars on it. So my arms are up above my head riding a posty bike. Um, and change the carby. Has it got a yeah. air filter and a pipe? What have you done? Yeah, I gave it. I gave it a carby increase. Uh, I bought a different um, crank for it, so which basically makes it rev a little bit harder. And also, I put an aftermarket exhaust on it, so it sounds really tough. And changed the gear ratio so I could get it up to 105 on the um, on the freeway. 
uh, yeah, it's it's a bit of kit. Oh, and I got a and I got like a bobber seat on it. So oh, I got nice. I got the seat shaved down, the original seat. I got it shaved down and reupholstered in this beautiful tan tan leather. It's yeah, it's cool. I'm picturing Grant Denyer in like World War II fighter pilot goggles going down to somewhere in Bathurst for a coffee. <laughs> How often do you ride it? I don't get out on it often enough. Only because I don't trust my mechanical skills that, skills that I've put it back together properly. <laughs> Uh, but I take it out every now and then. It's 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 a lot of fun, man. It's cool. A couple of good ones to finish. Any unfinished business in motorsport, an event, something that you'd like to do? I'd like to go back to Europe. I'd love to do Spa, like the, the GT race. 24-hour race in Spa would be unreal. Nürburgring was by far probably the greatest experience, you know, circuit racing experience in my life. It was just incredible. Um, you know, so some overseas races would be great. You know, I was really happy with winning the GT championship in 2016. Um that was that was enormously rewarding. You know, I might do a little bit more next year, but I'm just going to keep it at fun. You know, keep it at fun for now. You know, I'm really in a fortunate place in my career at the moment where TV-wise it's going really well. I've got a couple of new shows out and I just, you know, I took, I took a, a gold trophy uh, from the industry as well. So it's, you know, I, I, I just got to keep it in perspective that motorsport is now just a thing of fun for me. Proud dad, couple of young kids. Do the Denyers road trip, and is there a piece of road or a place you like to, to travel? Some really good roads around Bathurst. There's this one great road between Goulburn and Bathurst that I discovered uh, by accident, and it is one of the greatest bit of tars. It goes through this beautiful terrain, up and down these gorges, great sweeping bends. Um, so I, I love to drive. Like, I really do love to drive. Um, so much so that I decided once to drive across the Nullarbor Plain in a golf buggy. Once <laughs> again, it was still a very stupid idea. So I got this golf buggy, and again, they only do 35 kilometres an hour. So I've, I found uh, some bigger tyres, uh, different gear ratio from the States, and we, we did it, and it was a terrible idea, pretty much because a little golf buggy driving along a 100-kilometre-hour road, when you have a road drain that's coming the other way, <laughs> road trains move a lot of air. <laughs> The road train would go past and I'd spend like the next three minutes trying to catch the golf buggy as it's swaying all over the road, trying not to tip it over. I spent a whole day driving across the Nullarbor Plain once in the nude as well. So it was like... There's a mental image for our, for our podcast audience. We could probably do without. Things happen on the road, man. Can I just say things happen? And that's when I decided it's time to get off the road. The girls are great supporters. When they phone, do they... Get more excited about Dad with a good race result or Dad on TV? I think they just like it when Dad comes home, you know. Uh, I remember I remember the first time I did Family Feud, my little daughter, she was sitting next to me and she would have been four. And she looks at the television and I'm on it. And then she looks at me, I'm sitting on the couch next to her. She looks back to the television, she looks at me and she goes, I've got two daddies. <laughs> I said, can you do me a favour? When you go to um, preschool tomorrow, can you tell them that? Because they'll think some really funny things about your mum. (laughs) They'll they'll think that when I'm away, mummy's got another special daddy that comes along. (laughs) But they they love coming. I I take them um, to my workplace. I think it's important for your kids to know what it is you do because it, it helps them understand that when you go away, and the unfortunate thing about what I have in my life is many people do, and fly in, fly out workers are the same. When you go away, and it's a big impact on those kids, and it's also a big impact when you come back because you really disrupt the rhythm. Um, so I like them to know where it is I go and what I'm doing. So we bring them down to the TV sets every now and then so they can just visualise what it looks like when Daddy says he's going away. And that sort of helps them understand and comprehend. But, yeah, I'm just a dad to them. They don't care. You said before you don't necessarily get off on the idea of, of a, you know, a, a Ferrari at home in the garage or whatever because you probably get it you know, out of your system in many yeah. respects here at the racetrack. If money was no object, what's the grail car for Grant Denyer? That's a really, really good question that I've never, ever been able to answer myself. And I sit about it and I think about it all the time and I just can't decide. Is the Mustang right up there in that sense, given that you've already got that in the in the garage? Yeah, look, I, I like it It's because it's timeless. The problem is with a brand new car is they're superseded the moment the next model comes out. Just as you think, this is my forever car, just say it's the, the new McLaren. Just say that's your, your for, oh, I could own this car forever. Then you see the next one, and you go, oh my God, that is so much sexier than the last one. You've got to, yeah. So it's kind of like a bottomless pit. You're never satisfied. So I can't resolve that in my mind. 
because I know that if you if I forked up and I never would a crazy amount of dough for a car I'd only see the next model and then be disappointed with the one I got so I don't start that process yeah. you know I and I'd be happy and I in fact I enjoy it more than anything just driving a crappy old manual Corolla around the road because to get a bit of speed out of it you got to manhandle it a little bit and you got to you got to you got to you kind of got to grab it by the scruff of the neck and that's more fun than trying to drive a supercar that's designed to go 320 kilometers an hour you know at, at 50 yes. in suburban streets so i just i don't have that desire to have something in my garage right christ <laughs> road rule or driving habit that drives you mad people who beep when the lights go on green and they're behind you, you know, you, you know when you're up green. Because I'm not in a hurry on a road. Like I'm patient. I'm slow. I'm courteous. I let people in. I get, maybe it's because I get all, all my, out of my system when I'm on a racetrack. But I'm I'm very calm on the road. And then I'm waiting for the traffic light to turn green. So you know the guy behind you, like come on, mate. it's like a nanosecond, and he's in the horn. Oh my god! I would get out and smash your windscreen in. If I wasn't five foot five and you weren't Tongan, I'd be at you. <laughs> All right, you touched on it before. Congratulations, mate, on the gold Logie win. That is mega. Has it sunk in? And please, please, please tell us that you're not using it as like a wheel chock in the garage for the Mustang. Or doesn't doesn't Scotty Cam use them as doorstops at home or something? Yeah, you know what's funny? I never understood why people dissed it like that. Like it's, it was funny to say it was a doorstop or it was a stubby opener, as Scotty Cam said. And so many people went that. Went the too cool for school route when it comes to winning one. And to be honest, mate, I've been in television for 20 years now. You know, I learned so much under you and watching the way you work and the way you handle people and your work ethic is the best I think I've ever seen anywhere in, in any field. And you just have a lot of pride, you know. Well, shit. As you should, mate. You're welling up a little bit here. That's meant, clearly it's meant a lot to you. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, How much? Because um, you've yeah. gone through a lot, mate, to get to that yeah. point, haven't you? Yeah, there's been a there's been a few lows and, and a lot of highs, and it's nice to come out the other side and recognise your mistakes and a few close calls and 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 to just you know to I think I got to a point where I just wanted to be a bit of a better person and wanted to have a bit more of a, a more of a positive influence on the pe- people around me. And I was very grateful to, to get to, to where, I, where I was. So to win that award was, it snuck up on me what it, what it meant to me, to be honest. And I knew it would be nice. I didn't realise how much it would mean the moment that it happened. And, and kind of like getting back behind the wheel after I broke my back and winning races, you know, winning that gold Loki was, was exactly the same thing. It, it was the bookend of, of what was a bit of a bad period for me. So... Um, I was back on my feet, you know, I was making good television, I was enjoying life, you know, I was being kind, and, yeah, it was just... I'd kind of rebirthed myself, if you like. So it was, you know, I struggled with the idea of no motorsport in my life for a while. Like, I I didn't handle it very well. Um, When you dedicate your life to one particular aspect and then you remove it completely from your life, you know, that's... It's, it's like quitting smoking. There's a massive withdrawal that happens, and I think that um, that hole that was left behind, um, you know, was, wasn't a very healthy one for me. So I had to try and fall back in love with life without motorsport again, and I managed to do that. So winning, having a show like Family Feud, and then winning a Logie for it was was kind of like I've come full circle. Well done. Congratulations. I mean, richly deserved. You've got a great, some great new stuff in the pipeline, which you talked about before, and you've been doing some wonderful things for Aussie farmers, mate, at a, at a critical time of drought in Australia. Well done. Thanks, mate. I really appreciate it. It's been, been, been great to talk to you. Thanks, mate. Rusty's Garage is written and presented by me, Greg Rust. Series producer and editor is Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.